This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Welcome everyone to another session of our Dialogue Sunday School or Sunday uh, Gospel Study. Today we have the honor of hearing from Rachel Hunt Steenblick. Um, as always, we've invited Rachel to speak for herself and to give us her valuable perspectives. She speaks only for herself and does not represent Dialogue or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're going to start off today with an opening hymn, um, Consider the Lilies of the Valley, a prayer by Katie Rich. Our dear Heavenly Parents, we are grateful to be here together. The, the Dialogue Foundation created this opportunity for us to learn from, from Rachel. Um, Rachel has done so much to turn our hearts to the mother and to teach us to turn heartbreak into action as even in political unrest in a global pandemic, she shows us that tiny kindnesses are still happening and that we can look for ways to love our neighbors and love ourselves. We pray to feel the spirit and be receptive to what we may learn today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Into that. Um, we're really excited to hear from Rachel today, uh, as Katie put so beautifully in her prayer. She has done a lot to contribute to this conversation through her poetry, through her research, through her advocacy, um, and really has just been a steady voice throughout this conversation and throughout the community. She is graciously chiming in from China, and it is three o'clock there, your time, one o'clock in the morning? Oh, one thirty. One thirty. One thirty. So you know that she values this conversation because she's willing to do that for all of us here today, and we are grateful for it. So we'll just go right into your lesson. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Esther. Thank you for the beautiful prayer, Katie. Um, so hello everyone. Thank you for listening either live with us now or listening later. Um, the come follow me first part that I'll be looking at is this section going over parts of numbers. It begins even on foot, it wouldn't normally take 40 years to travel from the wilderness of Sinai to the promised land in Canaan, but that's how long the children of Israel needed to become the Lord's covenant people. The book of Numbers describes some of what happened during those 40 years, including lessons the children of Israel needed to learn before entering the promised land. Continues, we're all like the Israelites in some ways. We all know what it's like to be in a spiritual wilderness, and the same lessons they learn can help us prepare to enter our own promised land, eternal life with our Heavenly Father and Mother. I immediately thought of this book called God is Not One. It's a textbook that I'm using for my Intro to World Religions class. In the Buddhism chapter, the author Stephen Prothero writes, in the Western religions, wandering typically arrives as punishment. It is the spanking you get after you eat the apple or kill your brother. But for Siddhartha, wandering arrived as opportunity. For Jhansi and Lao Tzu and Taoism, it's an opportunity too, as well as playing and the way to flourishing. In fact, Prothero writes, the first chapter of the Taoist classic, the Jhansi, is called Free and Easy Wandering. It speaks of a sage who could ride upon the wind wherever he pleased, drifting marvelously for days at a time. Another who rides on the clouds, driving a flying dragon and wanders beyond the four seas. And yet another who can roam in non-action. One translator of this work said, Wandering is probably the single most important and quintessential concept in this text. And adds that you, which is... Rachel, yes, you need to restart your screen share. I think your slides aren't showing. Oh, so something happened during the music. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that they were. Yeah, the music, the music froze, and I I did it from my my hard drive because okay, the the video froze. Do you would you want to just do it the slides from your heart your screen as well? Yeah, I can do that. Let's just 
trying to pull up to even share the screen. I, I have it now, so I could do it as well. Either way is okay. Okay, can you guys see now? Yes, you're good to go. Okay, so sorry about that. Um, let me... Okay, um, so these are the slides that I thought I was showing you. Um, just a great old screenshot from the Come Follow Me lesson. Um, then I shared this passage from Come Follow Me. Um, this is the cover of the book that I was just reading from. So one of the things that did strike me is this idea of wandering, um, that different religious traditions have a different understanding of whether it's a positive or a negative thing. And thinking about what wandering can look like, um, maybe even what we can learn from other religions, um, this wandering thing to have it be meaningful for us as well. Um, so I shared that this book, um, Buddhism saw it as an opportunity, and then Taoism sees it as like a playful thing. Um, so I think that I was right around here. Um, so you, which is usually translated as wandering, but also means playing, is a term for that transcendental sort of free movement, which is the mark of an enlightened being. This movement can be of the mind as well as the body. The Jhansi itself rambles whimsically from the story to that without a care in the world about continuity, organization, or narrative arc. Having no way, it seems to chuckle, may take you to the way itself. Taoist techniques work by fostering union with the life-giving Tao, since vitality, longevity, and even immortality come only by living in harmony with the natural rhythms of things. Wandering in the mountains liberates us from the death-dealing details of everyday social life. Only by getting the Tao can we achieve the freedom and vitality of the sage. The conversation, and God is not one, on wandering shifts when we get to the Judaism chapter. Here is one example. And perhaps the most fateful deal in the history of the world's religions, God calls Abraham and his descendants to be his people and promises them a special land. To get there, however, they will have to wander as will Moses, who after leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, will spend 40 years in the wilderness hard by the promised land. And another more full account. The story they told was one of exile and return. This theme announces itself in the first chapters of Genesis, when the first three human beings are punished by exile. Adam and Eve for eating the forbidden fruit, and Cain for killing his brother. It reappears in the story of Abraham, who follows God's instruction to wander west from his home in Ur and Mesopotamia towards modern-day Palestine. And as God puts it unto the land that I will show thee, it surfaces again in the story of Moses, who leads God's people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, only to find himself wandering for 40 years in the wilderness of the Sinai Desert. Neither Abraham nor Moses arrives in the promised land. The book continues. Together, these exilic experiences prompted a literature of longing and turned the Jewish community into a people of the book. The book of Psalms gives voice to this longing, recalling a people who lay down by the rivers of Babylon and wept as they remembered Zion. I think about how this longing can go both ways. I think about these moments we all sit with when we do not get what we want or what we think we need, when we don't know where to go or how to get out, when we are in the middle of our stories. I think about a hymn I was first introduced to at the first New York Mormon Art Center Festival, and it was still called the New York Mormon Art Center and maybe a hymn of longing. I couldn't find a recording, so I'm just going to read the lyrics. Um, the lyrics are written by Michaela and Nathan Thatcher, and the music composition is by Nathan Thatcher. It's called From Our God Is All We Own. When I first heard it, I was sitting by Christine Hagland, and um, so beautiful that he, um, we both wept. The first verse, from our God is all we own. Every breath and beat we've known, beating halts too soon, breath wanes like the moon. 
Our days pass like smoke before us. Fear and trembling fill our bones. All we have must pass away. We meet silence when we pray. When light seems to leave, can we yet believe? Stripped of meaning seems all suffering. How canst thou still hide thy face? In the world we are dismayed, but thou hast endured our pain. As beloved son, thou hast overcome. Thou hast promised joy for ashes, joined us in our home of clay. Though we have not understood, we have trust that thou art good. We have seen thy hand, not the promised land. May we, as thy wandering children, comprehend thy parenthood. I think about another type of wandering and another hymn participating in the literature of longing. This time for God's goodness, like a fetter, to bind my wandering heart to thee. Um, this is a, this is a music I am going to try to play. So we may have trouble like we did before, but I'm going to try.
rendition always and those last lines always prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart oh take and seal it seal it for thy courts above i also wonder like i shared before about these different types of wandering um, and if we in the Mormon wilderness can have a playful element too as the Taoist, or if we can have opportunity in our wandering like the Buddhist. Connor Hilton, founder of the recent Mormon Wilderness Project, may say yes. I asked him to tell me a little bit more about his project and some of the reasons why he started it. He wrote back, there are a few different strands that came together for me that I'll try to tease out. One is very similar to your book, Mormon Feminism, actually. As I first entered the wilderness, so to speak, I was constantly amazed at the richness of books, articles, peoples, ideas, magazines, blogs, podcasts, art, etc. that came before me that I never heard of. I wanted to try and put something together that would serve as a witness to the past wanders in the Mormon wilderness so that conversations would potentially be able to move forward rather than stagnating and repeating themselves, and that folks when they entered the wilderness would feel less alone, that it could be a comfort to try and trace an alternate genealogy of Mormon tradition, as it were, instead of people feeling trapped by their Mormonness, working to open that up. So part of what I want to do is incorporate personal essays from folks like all of you, that describe a wide variety of individual journeys, experiences in the wilderness, to complement this rich sense of history, that not only have Mormons wandered ever since there was a Mormonism to wander in from, so there are loads of us doing that still today. If any of you are interested in participating in the Mormon Wilderness Project, Connor said that there are three ways to do so. You can reach out to him on social media, or you can email the email address listed or um, use the contact form page on the website, themormonwilderness.wordpress.com. I also thought of this poem that Margaret Atwood wrote about marriage that may also resonate for some of us about religion or God. Religion is not a house or even a tent. It is before that and colder the edge of the forest, the edge of the desert, where we are learning to make fire. And here is a place that I'd actually love um, someone to read. Andy, if you're willing to read, I'd love you to read um, these verses for us from Revelation 12, remembering the woman in the wilderness. Andy, are you willing to read for me? There we go. I remembered Thank our, you. and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold, a great red dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was caught up unto God and unto his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Are you willing to keep reading? Your, um, your voice is so beautiful. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. 
and to the woman were given two wings of great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she was nourished where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth revelation thank you thank you so much andy um fiona and terrell givens have written extensively about this allegory in a Q&A um, around the time of the God who weeps, they said, even Mormons often miss misunderstanding of his mission as a modern prophet, referring to the allegory of the woman in the wilderness who was nurtured of the Lord through centuries of darkness. Smith believed that the church he restored did not suddenly emerge from a vacuum. He taught that the fullness of truth was known to the ancients, and a more recent Mormon leader taught that when God lacked for prophets, he spoke to the poets. Every essential Mormon belief has counterparts in the ancient or contemporary world, parallels that enrich and sometimes amplify Mormon teachings. One year after that interview, I heard both of the Givens speak with Richard Bushman in a building in New York City that was marked by the sign, Give me hope in the darkness that I will see the light. Fiona told this story again of the woman in the wilderness. And these are from my notes, which I published on the Exponent blog at that time. So Fiona said, God nourished the woman in the wilderness. How does God nourish the church and the apostasy? The apostasy was full of truth. Joseph was quite clear about that. He wasn't trying to restore truth. He was trying to restore priesthood keys. Handel's Messiah is one of the most beautiful religious music we have. It came to us during that time. A little later in her same remarks, she said, we need to be very kind to ourselves. Lehi was desperate to get out of the wilderness. Stay a little longer, and then the vision comes. Don't abort your faith journey. It will take us all over the place. Two months after this, Terrell Givens published an article called The Woman in the Wilderness, Mormonism, Catholicism, and Inspired Syncretism. One part says, this highly significant redaction refers to what would become known as Mormonism as the beginning of the rising up and coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. Subsequently, Smith dictates other revelations that employ that very language. One refers to the restoration as this church I called forth out of the wilderness. Another expresses the hope that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun. Givens continues, and the LDS edition of the Bible, the heading identifies the woman in this allegory as a representation of the church whose flight before the forces of Satan portends the great apostasy. But Smith seems to have noticed the crucial fact that this woman is not banished from the earth. She retreats into the wilderness. There she does not perish altogether. On the contrary, she is nourished for a prolonged period of time. Joseph Smith's sense was that he was recuperating Christianity from its exile in the wilderness. In my book of poems, Mother's Milk, I've used the allegory of the woman in the wilderness much more simply, thinking directly about Heavenly Mother. The woman in the wilderness. Is she the woman in the wilderness who is nourished there or the God who prepared her place? I don't know if Margaret Toscano has used the word wilderness to talk about Heavenly Mother, but I did hear her speak once about how Heavenly Mother is with the outcast. I wrote another simple poem, What Margaret Taught Me. Our mother sits still with the dying and the woman in labor. She cries with the outcast. Toscano also continued this theme in her recent publication and dialogue. God's love must be present and active, not remote and passive. 
It must be manifest concretely in bearing the burdens of others and embracing the outcast and mourning with the grief stricken. Coming back to the woman in the wilderness, the thread that strikes me in the original scriptural story that Andy read for us so beautifully, and in these other retellings, is that the woman who fled into the wilderness is fed. The scriptural account says she hath the place prepared for God, that they should feed her there, that she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, then later adds, and the earth helped the woman. I remember the earlier story of the children of Israel wandering in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years, tired and discouraged perhaps, and learning lessons, but not hungry. Then I remember the single best moment of my early morning seminary experience. Um, It's hard to describe without knowing the teacher, but she was an older woman who had like bright reddish purple hair before having bright colored hair was a thing to do. Um, And partway through the lesson, I have no idea how we did not notice this, but she had like tacked up um, like big bed sheets to the ceiling. So she takes a giant stick, like a wooden stick, and starts whacking um, at the sheet situation above. And um, homemade banana bread and individually wrapped packages fell from the sky as she shrieked, banana manna, Um, by far the best day, seminary. Um, So this this feeling is so strong that we will be fed in our wilderness. We are fed. We will be nourished. Um, This is also where I tell you that I don't know how long it will take um, to share the things that I want to tell you for the rest of my presentation. But at the end, I do hope that we can have at least a quasi-discussion. I know that I think there's a chat function that people can write in, um, maybe both on the Zoom as well as the Facebook Live. So if some of the like the hosts or the other dialogue friends here helping me, they're willing to help check for comments um, for then I'd be really grateful. So one of the things that I'm going to want to come back to to hear people's thoughts on are these ideas that I've been trying to weave of wandering and wilderness and being fed. Um, You don't have to answer these exact questions, but things like, have you experienced wandering as punishment or opportunity or playfulness? Have you found a home in religion or perhaps only a tent? Are you comfortable being at the edge of the forest, learning to make fire? Have you been nourished in your wilderness? So I'm going to keep going, but I'm going to come back to these questions at the end um, to hopefully hear some of the comments people are sharing. Um, And coming back to Come Follow Me, there's another part where it talks about prophets. Starts, what do you think Moses meant? When he said he wished that all the Lord's people were prophets. As you ponder these verses, consider these words of President Russell M. Nelson. Does God really want to speak to you? Yes. Oh, there's so much more that your father in heaven, that I'd add mother in heaven, wants you to know. However, saying that everyone can be a prophet doesn't mean they all can lead God's people the way Moses did. So I immediately thought of this list. Um, that came out like right around the time of general conference that a stranger happened to place me and a few other people on um, of true prophets and false prophets with a heading at the top called Weekend Reminders. I also thought of my initial response that I wrote to two friends, and I said, I'm not a false prophet, I'm a prophetess. It was mostly a joke, mostly, um, but I was also thinking about Eliza R. Snow. Brigham Young called her Zion's poetess, priestess, and prophetess. And then I responded by hiring a graphic designer to design me shirts, as one does who's been put on a false prophet list. I wanted to share some of the other responses to that list. Um, The list itself is like pretty silly, but I do think that it actually can be a useful tool to think through some of these questions. Um, this was on Facebook when I shared it there. It said, you are the one person I saw correctly predict the future over the last month. Um, this is not to talk so much about that, except to talk about um, like maybe some of the methods of prophesying. 
Um, I did share a post, like I posted a lot that month before conference, but I also shared this post like right before um, conference started. Um, the very last part of the top said whether or not it's Renlin. Um, I'm expecting to, like his words will give us the best clue. So I'm expecting to hear that we should not pray to Heavenly Mother because Jesus did not. Reason is not revelation. Questions are okay, but speculation is not. Demanding revelation on our timetable is arrogant, and the gospel topic is all we know. And then I continued of what I wasn't expecting was I didn't think he'd be like Hinckley, um, who when he gave his journal conference talk saying don't pray to Heavenly Mother, he told us that they started in private leadership trainings. Um, I also said a few more things. Um, pretty much exactly the things that I said I thought would happen are what happened. Um, they happened because I knew the history of the experiences with Gordon B. Hinckley, the excommunications that followed. Um, I also had good information given to me. So I think that in some ways, prophecy may look like knowing the history and getting good information. Um, I also love Carrie Spencer's response. She said, did you see that one response that was like, your sons and your daughters will prophesy? Oh, looks like only one list has daughters. Um, where, of course, it's referencing the scripture in Joel. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Another response. In ancient times, the poet and a prophet were the same person, and the word name meant the same thing. And writing poetry is an act of faith. It is one of the most beautiful things I love about the process. So much is revealed through the process of writing poetry. It reminded me of this line from the Gibbons 2012 Pathios interview I talked about before. Um, said He taught that the fullness of truth was known to the ancients. I'm speaking of Joseph. And a more recent Mormon leader taught that when God lacked for prophets, he spoke to the poets. And then Meg Conley's response. This is the tweet she shared about a really beautiful essay she wrote. She said, I wrote about authority, family, Mormonism, false prophets, true kitchen prophecies, and a love story. Mostly I wrote a love story. It starts in 1856, or maybe it starts at the cosmic dawn, or maybe it doesn't start or end. It's my love story. Her writing space has changed homes. So if you click on the new link, this is what you'll see. Um, I personally think it is worth subscribing just to read this beautiful essay. But in it, she tells many stories. One of these stories is about the time her husband's ancestor heeded the prophet's call to leave General Conference and help the people who needed help from the Martin Willie Hancart Company. And Meg's husband's ancestor helped to rescue her ancestor, which helped them both exist. Another newer story was Meg's husband making Reuben sandwich conference weekend and her brother asking if she saw her name on a list titled false prophets. She hadn't, and then she had. She laughed, even though she didn't find it funny. Meg is the one who first showed me my name on the same list, so I cried as I read her experience. Then cried more as she shared about a time she stood in the kitchen and suddenly knew that her dad would die soon. He was not sick. There is no other reason to think this. And yet her prophecy came true. I remembered a similar story my mom had told me, where she also had a deep feeling to prepare her before her sister died, her only sibling, before her sister's children moved into our household. Then I remembered two dreams that I had had that might be more accurately described as visions. And one of them, I sat with someone in a specific spot I had never been to yet, and they told me something I could not know. Then a year or two after my dream, it happened word for word in the exact place. I also have experiences where I remember the story of Mormon women who came before who healed oxen. I think that both of these instances were actually before I knew the history of Mormon women healing blessings further. 
that they um, not only put their hands on oxen to bless them for their journey, but that they also put hands on women's heads before birth and with many other experiences. But I remembered these stories. Um, The first was my freshman year at BYU. I didn't have money to buy my own computer or my own printer, but my oldest sister gave me like um, one that she no longer needed. But the printer was on its last legs, and I had a paper that was due like minutes from then that I needed to run across campus to be on time for class and turn in. Um, so I was trying to print my paper, and it's also like even um, good printers often don't work when you need them to work, but this was a really old printer. And the printer was really struggling to do its job. And I remember the story of the oxen, and I thought, this is the thing that I need now. So this will sound maybe silly, but I literally put my hands on the printer, and I said a prayer that it would work um, so I could print my paper for class. And the printer worked one last time to print that paper and then never, ever again. Um, The second experience of healing something that needed to be healed Um, was a laptop I had. It was actually, I was about to speak at a Sunstone Symposium, a talk on Heavenly Mother, and um, liquid had spilled in my backpack, and I didn't realize it. So my computer was like giving the black face of death. It would not start for anything. Um, I hadn't saved my computer anywhere else, but besides my computer or the paper I was about to give. I mean, I remembered the story of the woman and the oxen, and I remember my experience several years before. Um, Once again, I laid my hands on an electronic device like an oxen, and I blessed that computer, and it worked. Um, And thankfully, it it continued to work after this. Um, So thinking of these stories of Meg and my mother and myself, I had the thought that maybe we are true prophets when we need to be, Um, but not just those of us I've shared, but all of us. I cried again in Meg's article when I read this. An LDS woman can never be a true prophet, but she can be a false prophet. Institutionally, though not individually, it seems true, even with scriptural precedence. We have Deborah, of course, and Anna, and I'm sure others. Um, Then this response to that true and false prophet list was shared with me just in the last two days. Um, when I shared that I was going to be giving these remarks today. She said, the list of prophets and false prophets makes me want to reply with this scripture from just a bit further down in Numbers 11. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written, went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. This is the place that I'll close this section. Um, These are also the verses Come Follow Me was referring to with its initial question. Um, This is another place that I'd love you to send comments if you have any thoughts or feelings about false and true prophets, either from the things that I shared or your own experiences or um, just any thoughts. Another place we'll come back to. Another section from Come Follow Me is about the serpent of brass. Betting says, if I look to Jesus Christ in faith, he can heal me spiritually. Then this, Book of Mormon prophets knew the story recorded in Numbers and understood its spiritual significance. Think about the spiritual healing you hope for. The Israelites had to behold the serpent of brass to be healed. What do you feel inspired to do to more fully look upon the Son of God with faith? Um, and here... Chris, if you're willing to read, I'd love you to read these Book of Mormon passages. I can do that. Uh, starting at the top? Um, just the, you, you don't have to read my like little line. You could just start at the quotes. So the first one starts, he, he sent, sent firing. He sent firing flying serpents among them. 
And after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor which they had to perform was to look. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. A type you. was raised. Oh, stop there. Yes, please. Got yeah, it? please continue. Thank you. Okay, now we're in Alma. Um, a type was raised up in the wilderness that whosoever might look upon it might live. Cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God that he will come to redeem his people and that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins and that he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection, that all men shall stand before him to be judged at the last and judgment day according to their works. Good. Thank you. Um, I suspect that many of you saw memes going around closer to the start of the pandemic about the simpleness of the way of COVID measures. Um, some of these maybe were about wearing a mask or social distancing or getting vaccinated. And I also saw many of these memes. One friend of mine wrote, when members of my faith fast and pray for the end of the pandemic or for temple work to recommence, then turn around and refuse to get vaccinated despite being practically begged to do so by the man they call their living prophet, who is also a renowned medical doctor. It feels like they may have tested positive for hypocrisy 19. I don't want to belabor that point, um, but I do want to talk about healing. One of the best talks I've ever heard on healing was a BYU devotional by Elaine Marshall called Learning the Healer's Art. Um, there are lots of parts that I want to share, but I just tried to choose about three, maybe a little more. Um, so one of the first things she says is healing hurts. When I was a young nurse in the hospital, hardly a day went by that a patient did not ask, will it hurt? If I had been truthful, the whispered answer would nearly always have been, yes, it will hurt. I have learned that healing hurts. Life hurts. Healing really only begins when we face the hurt in its full force and then grow through it with all the strength of our soul. Pain is part of living. Pain brings us to the source of healing. She says, we can partake of the healing medicine of the atonement of our Savior, who promised, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. Um, and here I make a brief interlude from the BYU devotional talk. Um, to mention a part from Stephen Peck's Gilda Trillum, Shepherdess of Wrath. If I had my copy with me, I'd read straight from the book, but I only have the poem that I wrote inspired by it. Um, so I'm just going to read the poem, what Stephen taught me. The mother is the shepherdess of wraths and humans. She answers from the sky. She knows what love is. It even matters to her. She knows we're all broken but not unhealed. She can't take us with her yet, but she can leave us with a blessing, can sit in rooms with women weeping, remembering, can offer healing milk from her own hands. I also think of the story of the army of Helaman, how all of the young men were preserved, but all of the young men were hurt. According to the goodness of God and to our great astonishment and also the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. Yea, neither was there one soul among them who had not received many wounds. Coming back to Marshall's devotional, healing is active. You have to be there. Your friend or your husband or wife or your mother cannot do it for you. You have to face the problem and the pain. My mother once told me of an experience she had one winter morning. She drove down to check the cattle in the lower pasture. She noticed a car off the side of the road. Inside, she recognized a young mother and three children. When my mother asked if they needed help, the woman tearfully reminded her that this was the place of the accident two weeks earlier that had killed her husband. She answered, we are just here to feel the hurt. Marshall continues, on that first day as a nurse, I assumed cure, care, and healing to be synonymous. I have learned that they are not the same. Healing is not cure. Cure is clean, quick, and done, often under anesthesia. Healing, however, is often a lifelong process of recovery and growth. It requires time. We may pray for cure when we really need healing. It cannot happen in a surgical suite where the pain is only a sleepy memory. 
Curious passive, as you submit your body to the practitioner, healing is active. It requires all the energy of your entire being. You have to be there fully awake, aware, and participating when it happens. Healing is private, she says. The hymn, Lord, I Would Follow Thee, describes hidden sorrow in a quiet heart. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry wrote, It is such a secret place, the land of tears. But to say that healing is private is not to diminish the marvelous power that comes from the help and compassion of others. Indeed, private healing often may not happen without the help of others. Her beautiful devotional also introduced me to this equally beautiful Orson F. Whitney quote. I have heard it many times since, so you may know it too. Um, Esther, are you willing to read it for us? Starting no pain that we suffer. Of course. Just move a few things here. I've got a couple of windows open to run stuff. Okay, there you go. No pain that we suffer is wasted. It ministers to our education, to the development of patience, faith, fortitude, and humility. All that we suffer, especially when we endure it patiently, builds up our characters, purifies our hearts, expands our souls, and makes us more tender, terrible, and worthy to be called the children of God. And it is through sorrow and suffering, toil and tribulation, that we gain the education that we come here to acquire, and which will make us more like our father and mother in heaven. Thank you. Um, this is another place where I'd love um, you to comment in for later. What are your thoughts on healing versus cure? Have you experienced this? During Last week's dialogue conversation on Heavenly Mother, Margaret Olson Hemming made a comment about how Mormons don't really know what to do with mystics, though she said we have them. It can be uncomfortable for us to sit with the unknown. At another point, she listed artists, poets, and philosophers as people in our tradition who are better at holding those spaces. It inspired me to turn to some of the Christian mystics to speak in my personal study. And this is the last like type of um, section for my remarks today. When I was reading, I found this quote by Caitlin Matthews. She said, significantly, the major mystics of all faiths have perceived the Lady Wisdom as a bridge between everyday life and the world of the eternal, often entering into deep accord with her purpose. But although such mystics as a medieval abbess, Hildegard of Bingen, or the Sufi Ibn Arabi, are hardly considered to be goddess worshippers in the feminist sense. They nevertheless show that the many that the channels to the divine feminine have been kept open, mediated by many so-called patriarchal faiths in some quite surprising ways. I read another thing that said Hildegard of Bingen is one of the first writers to include illustrations with her text, not as mere decoration, but as integral to her theology. She writes about Mother Earth. The Earth is at the same time Mother. She is the Mother of all that is natural, Mother of all that is human. She is Mother of all, for contained in her are the seeds of all. The Earth of humankind contains all verdancy, all germinating power. It is in so many ways fruitful. All creation and a symphony of joy and jubilation comes from it. And also from Hildegard. We cannot live in a world that is not our own, and a world that is interpreted for us by others. An interpreted world is not a home. Part of the terror is to take back our own listening, to use our own voice, to see our own light. Then she wrote down a vision she had of the divine feminine. This is also her painting or illumination um, as part of this as well. She said, I heard a voice speaking to me. The young woman who you see is love. She has her tent and eternity. It was love which was the source of this creation in the beginning. When God said, let it be, and it was. As though in the blinking of an eye, the whole creation was formed through love. The young woman is radiant, such a clear lightning-like brilliance of countenance that you can't fully look at her. She holds the sun and moon in her right hand and embraces them tenderly. The whole of creation calls this maiden lady. 
for it was from her that all of creation proceeded. Since love was the first, she made everything. Love was an eternity and brought forth and the beginning of all holiness, all creatures without any admixture of evil. Adam and Eve as well were produced by love from the pure nature of the earth. Before I get to Hildegard's prayer to Sophia, I want to pause to share a little more on the Sophia Wisdom Doctrine, starting with Margaret Toscano. In the same recent dialogue issue I quoted earlier, Toscano writes, In Old and New Testament traditions and in other Jewish and Christian texts, the Mother God appears as Wisdom, Hokma in Hebrew, and Sophia in Greek. Many Mormons now accept the goddess Asherah as the legitimate manifestation of the Heavenly Mother in the Old Testament. But equally important is Lady Wisdom in the Book of Proverbs, because she expands the picture of the female god from a fertility or mother goddess to a god with an ethically principled core. Wisdom is the foundation for all other divine attributes, because it moderates, mediates, and balances all other powers engenders the gift of discernment. I'm not going to read this um, all the way because we have access to it pretty easily, but these are one of the places that um, Toscano is talking about in Proverbs, where wisdom is personified, um, speaking to us. Doth not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of the high places. She crieth at the gates. I'm a little further down. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. And this one I do want to share because it's harder for us to find. And it's from a book of scripture called, literally called Wisdom from the Catholic Bible. I prayed and prudence was given me. I pleaded and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepter and throne and deem riches nothing in comparison with her. Nor did I liken any price system to her, because all gold and view of her is a little sand. And before her, silver is to be accounted mire. Beyond health and comeliness, I loved her and chose to have her rather than the light, because the splendor of her never yields to sleep, yet all good things together come to me in her company and countless riches at her hands. And here we have Hildegard's prayer to Sophia. She said, you of the whirling wings, circling, encompassing energy of God, you quicken the world in your clasp. One wing soars in heaven, one wing sweeps the earth, and the third flies all around us. Praise to Sophia, let all the earth praise her. Now, turning to a second Christian mystic, Julian of Norwich, the two most familiar passages I knew from her were the following, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And then a second I was introduced to more recently by the potter Joe Benyon, as truly as God is our father, so truly is God our mother. So after I saw his beautiful pottery, I did want to see the full context. Um, I'm going to tell you that not every part of this resonates with me, um, but it is really interesting to see um, where she places the mother in the Godhead, um, like as Jesus Christ, the son. So I'm going to read you what Julian of Norwich wrote. I saw and understood that the high might of the Trinity is our father. And the deep wisdom of the Trinity is our mother, and the great love of the Trinity is our Lord. Our great Father, Almighty God, who is being, knows us and loved us before time began. Out of this knowledge and his most wonderful deep love, by the prescient eternal counsel of all the blessed Trinity, he wanted the second person to become our mother, our brother, and our savior. From this it follows that as truly as God is our Father, so truly is God our Mother. Our Father wills, our Mother works. Our good Lord, the Holy Spirit, confirms. And therefore it is our part to love our God in whom we have our being, reverently thanking and praising him for our creation, 
mightily praying to our mother for mercy and pity, to our Lord the Holy Spirit for help and grace. And so Jesus is our true mother in nature by our first creation. He is our true mother in grace by his taking our created nature. All the lovely works and all the sweet loving offices of beloved motherhood are appropriated to the second person. For in him we have this godly will, whole and safe forever, both in nature and in grace, from his own goodness proper to him. The mother's service is nearest, readiest, and surest. Nearest because it is most natural. Readiest because it is most loving. And surest because it is truest. No one ever might or could perform this office fully, except only him. We know that all our mothers bear us for pain and for death. Oh, what is that? But our true mother Jesus, he alone bears us for joy and for endless life. Blessed may he be. So he carries us within him in love and travail until the full time when he wanted to suffer the sharpest thorns and cruel pains that ever were or will be, and at the last he died. The mother can give her child to suck of her milk, but our precious mother Jesus can feed us with himself and does most courteously and most tenderly with the blessed sacrament, which is the precious food of true life. With all the sweet sacraments, he sustains us most mercifully and graciously. This very lovely word mother is so sweet and so kind in itself that it cannot truly be said of anyone or to anyone except of him, to him who is the true mother of life and of all things. And this is ending the passage by Julian of Norwich. And I come to one last part, and then is where I hope to hear a few comments. Um, So I'm going to read, to finish by reading a children's book called Mother God. I checked, the author is a friend online. Um, She gave me permission to read this for our um, gospel study. I don't, I live in China, so I can't get hard books very much. So I'm just going to read from a tablet. But I will try to um, do like the librarian thing and show you the pictures. They're really beautiful. You know God the Father. But God is your mother too. You are made in her image. She is making all things new. Waiting for new life to begin, God is a mother in labor. She takes deep breaths until the birth, rejoicing with friend and neighbor. Throughout day and night, God wakes to nurse the infant at her side. She snuggles her baby gently until he closes his sleepy eyes. When baby tumbles on the floor, God pulls off each tiny sock. She holds her arms out wide, and the baby learns to walk. God is Sophia Wisdom, teaching what is right, true and right. Wisdom works, creates, orders, and plays. She calls us with joy and delight. Over the waters of creation, God is the spirit who hovers. She forms the earth into a bed, and the wide sky it covers. God is the mother hen, who gathers chicks under her wings. She plays hide-and-seek in soft grass, find trees, and quiet springs. She protects her cubs from danger. God, the great mother bear, as fierce as she is tender, She guards them in her care. God is the lurking leopard, secretive, skilled, and strong, teaching her young to swim and climb. She roars and they tag along. With a huge supply of flour, God needs and bakes good bread. She feeds her entire neighborhood. They feast and all are fed. God is the skillful seamstress who stitches and sews thread together. She makes clothes for rain, snow, and sun, caring for you in all kinds of weather. Granny Baba Hamioni, God is a woman with gray hair. She passes down stories of old, rocking softly in a chair. She is the God who sees you. 
God weeps, mourns, and cries. She comforts you through the longest night, keeping watch until sunrise. She quiets us with her songs, singing lullabies in the night. God, our nurturing mother, wraps us in holy moonlight. God is your loving mother. You are made in her image too. God calls you beloved. She is making all things new. Um, and now before the closing hymn, um, I hope that we, I know it's a little tricky to, like we can't talk, talk for most of us, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the things um, that I asked about before. Um, I don't have like the full language that I used to ask the questions, but just some of these themes. Um, so I'd love to hear any of your comments or thoughts or ideas on wilderness and wandering, true prophets and false prophets, healing um, versus cure, and anything about mystics, Lady Wisdom, Heavenly Mother. Rachel, um, yeah. I think what we'll do is we'll officially close out this meeting, but we usually do sort of an after talk, and that'll be okay. a great place to discuss all these things. That way, if there's anyone well, who has some commitments and they want to get out of here, they yeah, have some of future to this conversation, but okay. definitely so want to discuss. Um, then I would like to close with a song, still, if that's okay. Yeah, no, we definitely can. Um, and then so we'll do that, and then we can come back. Okay, perfect. I just wanted to, um, yeah, to say a few great. things, uh, just kind of wrap up a few thoughts I've had as we've been speaking. Okay. Um, I love that your book is titled, titled Mother's Milk, and I was thinking about that as an analogy as you were speaking today and sharing us, sharing your spirit with us. And I was thinking about, like, a scientific facts about breast milk and how it's the only food source that com that provides a complete um, range of nutrients and things that that a human needs, but also that it provides an immune system. And as I was thinking about this space, especially that, you know, is created here with these dialogue discussions and talks, and I often feel like they provide me with spiritual immunity to deal with the pressures of patriarchy and the pressures of oppression and negativity that we see in the world. And I feel like that's what you provided for us today. You provided something that is complete and something that will sustain us and create immunity for us as we move forward into this week. And I'm personally very grateful for that. So thank you. Thank you. That was um, so beautiful. Thank you for what you shared. Welcome. So the, um, the hymn that I want to close with, and then we'll come back to discussion for anyone who is able to stay it's called Mother May I by Rachel Gunderson. Okay. Um, I love that song. Um, Esther, do we want to have the closing prayer then before the talk yes. is well? Okay. Thank you. That was Thank beautiful. You. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll have a closing prayer now by Andy Pitcher Davis. Andy, you're muted still. Our dear Divine Mother, we follow the example of Christ on the cross after his betrayal and feeling forsaken. And on this day and at this time, we regard thee and see thee and recognize thee. We think of thee and know Thee is wisdom, that you were here before the beginning, before there were depths, before there were fountains or water or mountains and hills brought forth. We know thee, that before he had made the earth or fields or highest parts of the dust of the worlds to be like thee, that you were here. We think of thee as he thought of thee, as compass on the face of the depth of this earth, foundation to this world. In this place, this wilderness, we follow thee, Mother, in thy ex exile by those known as saplings or oaks, small. We look for thee, and we know thy name, for it is written in the lines 
of the hands and our palms, the veins of the trees around us, and we are within thee. We've inherited your eyes and see horizontal. Know thee is irrepressible. So long in this wilderness you have been, mother, that you have prepared this way, and we wander with you through caverns, through valleys, carved by time and water. And gladly, we listen when you say to us, now therefore hearken unto me, O you children, for blessed are they that keep my ways, the ways of the mother, the ways of wisdom, hear instruction and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whosoever findeth me findeth life, and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, fail to find the mother, harm themselves. All who hate her love death. In the name that all you've created, and all you've sacrificed, in the name of your memories, and your weeping, in the name of your son, even Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.